You're listening to The Front Lines, a podcast for the people that truly make mountain biking happen. Not the riders, racers, or product designers, but the builders, advocates, and the often forgotten board members of your local mountain bike trail association. Biking is more than just riding bikes, and today's discussion is a prime example. My guest is the founder of the Aboriginal Youth Mountain Bike Program. We touch on a very important topic, and that is reconciliation. The work that my guest is doing is helping Canadians understand just what reconciliation is. Not by telling them, but by connecting different communities together. Before we start our discussion, I'd like to explain to any listeners outside of Canada, and I'm sure many Canadians as well, just why reconciliation is so important. As far back as 1870, Indigenous children were forcibly taken from their homes by the Royal Canadian Mounted Police and placed in residential schools across the country. These children were separated from their communities and families and subsequently their culture. 150,000 children were taken, and almost all of them suffered physical, emotional, and sexual abuse. There was upwards of a 60% mortality rate in these schools, making these acts a genocide. Of the 130 residential schools, the last was closed in 1996, meaning that if you're older than 20, this happened in your lifetime. We all have a role to play in reconciliation, and that includes mountain biking. I'm Brent Hillier. Welcome to Frontlines. My next guest is Patrick Lucas. Patrick is the founder of the Aboriginal Youth Mountain Bike Program. Hi, Patrick. Welcome to the show. Hello, Brent. Thanks for having me on. Yeah. So can you tell us about a little bit about the Aboriginal Youth Mountain Bike Program? Absolutely. So the, the program started about five years ago, and I was working as a community planner uh, with First Nation communities around the province, uh, working on various types of projects, community planning, land use, economic development. Um, and to a large extent, I was actually really dissatisfied with the work that I was doing. It was really important work, but I didn't feel like I was really connecting with the communities. And I felt like a lot of the stuff that we were doing was uh, sadly ineffectual. Um, but it all changed one day when I was in a small community called the Boothroyd Indian Band in the Fraser Canyon. And one of the elders during a community meeting leaned over and he asked me, what do you know about mountain biking? And I wasn't really sure where he was coming from. I didn't expect it at all. But I'd been riding most of my life. Uh, and I'm a rider. I'm not a professional by any means, but something I've always done with a lot of passion. Uh, and he told me, he said, well, our kids are doing it. They're mountain biking all over the community. Uh, they're, they're taking wood from people's fences and their yards to build their jumps and their tricks and their features. We can't leave a pile of dirt without these kids making some silly looking jump out of it. We don't want them to stop. We want them to stop taking wood from people's fences, but we want them to keep active. It keeps them outside. It keeps them away from drugs and alcohol. Can you help us? And so, of course, I said, yes, absolutely. Uh, so I reached out to people in the mountain bike community, uh, some people who've become dear friends of mine and, and, and mentors to me, people like Doug Detwiller from Sprockids, 
Uh, there's an, and we got a small grant from Mountain Equipment Co-op and the Vancouver Foundation. And then we worked with the kids and for two straight days in their community, we built a small bike park for them and, and some little trails. And it was an incredible experience for me. It was transformative. It, it completely changed my relationship with the community. People started opening up to me a lot more in ways that they hadn't. And it just, it really showed to me that this was something that I wanted to explore further. So we formed the Aboriginal Youth Mountain Bike Program and we started reaching out to communities. And ever since then, it's really blossomed. We now work with around 24 communities around the province, all over BC. Uh, and the whole goal of the program is to get kids outdoors, living active, healthy lives through mountain biking. So we tour around the province and we, we do bike maintenance clinics, we do riding clinics, and we also train uh, youth crews to get out and build trails. Uh, and it's uh, been an amazing experience. Very cool. So, so the kids are, are riding already. They're, they're out there on bikes. This isn't something that you're, you're bringing uh, mountain biking to these communities. Like these kids are, are out riding already. Yes, absolutely. And, and most, and this was one of the things that kind of came as a bit of a surprise, to be quite honest. Um, you know, we'd go to a lot of the communities and a lot of people were, that we worked with tentatively were at the beginning, a little bit nervous about it. Like, are we introducing a really expensive sport and something that's inaccessible to communities? But every community that I've been to, there's always a whole bunch of kids who are out riding you know they don't have the greatest bikes you know a lot of time they're really simple and they're not very great shape but they're out there riding they're building their own little trails they're building their own little jump tracks um, and largely on their own and it's something that's not really on the radar of the community leadership but it's something that kids are doing so if there's anything that we do it's really we we try to work with the leadership and the, and the adults and families in the community and kind of put this on their radar and show them what their kids are already doing and then we help the kids we just enhance their skills so we we bring in professional mechanics who can actually train them and teach them how to build and maintain their bikes we help them get access to more affordable parts through local bike stores uh, we bring in professional instructors who teach them how to ride and really encourage them to wear their helmets and we help them get access to helmets and more most importantly in my view is that we help the the leadership to see that this is something their kids are already doing and all they have to do is really support it and help them uh, to do it properly one of my favorite stories we went to the community uh, we were invited by the local recreation coordinator he had heard about what we were doing with the youth program and he thought maybe this would be something the kids can get into uh, and it, as it turned out, a number of the kids in the community uh, were riding already. They, had, they, they called themselves the Res Riders. Uh, they even have like a Facebook fan page. And you go on and these kids have been building some pretty cool looking little jumps around the community. And they had some really neat little videos of themselves that looked like they were playing in a, in a gravel pit or something like that. And so we went to them and we asked them, it's like, well, where are you guys riding? And they, they took us out into the forest through like the gravel pit up the steep ravine, kind of up behind where their, their subdivision is built in their community. And there in the woods, they had built like 500 meters of this jump track with all these really sketchy looking wooden features built out of wood pallets and rotting drywall. Um, and all they had was a broken wheelbarrow with a flat tire and a broken shovel and a bucket with a pretty big hole in the bottom of it, you know, and that's all they had. And the, the chief was with us and he was looking at, he's like, how, how long have you kids been building this? And he was like, well, three years. 
this amazing accomplishment these kids had built. And this, it was off in the woods. It was kind of hidden. And it also turned out that it was built right on the water pipeline that served the community. So of course the, the rec coordinator and the chief were like, Oh my God, if something happens with this pipeline, we're going to have to destroy this. And we don't want to do that. Um, So we worked with the kids and we decided to build them a new bike park. Uh, That would be in a location that the the band put aside for them. It's in a a really nice forested area. Uh, And the the band uh, provided some heavy equipment, some backhoes and some uh, bobcats. And we brought in, I think they were called uh, guys from Joyride in Whistler and Seb Kemp. Uh, who was doing uh, trail management for the Pemberton Valley Trails Association. And they worked for two days and they built these kids this amazing uh, little jump track uh, in the community. And I think the cool thing was about it is that it was it was kind of built near the community where they could access it if something went wrong, if someone could get hurt, but it was still kind of off in the forest. Because the one thing we don't want to take is that that place where these kids can go and be by themselves and be away from adults, um, and, and, but still make it safe enough that if someone got hurt, an ambulance or people could get in there and get these kids out. Uh, and the other piece that I really liked about that is we had asked the kids, because there actually was a bike park in the community beforehand, a really small one. And we asked the kids, well, why don't you use that one anymore? Because when we saw it, it was just completely grown over with weeds. Um, and part of the problem was that it was poorly designed, so there was a, a lot of water flowing through it. Um, but the other part, they said, is we got bored, you know, because what happens is adults find out about what these kids are doing, and they're like, okay, we're going to go in, and we're going to build this structured thing, and and then they'll have this awesome facility, and then the kids get bored with it really easily, and they move on. So what we did with the kids is working with Seb Camp and working with the guys from Joyride, they trained them, showed them how to build safer jumps, um, you know, and the band said, look, we'll provide you with proper wood. Don't use these rotten pallets anymore. And then they left them with the tools and a giant pile of dirt and said, this is yours. You go to it. And so whenever I go back now, the kids are still using the park and it's turned out really, really good. Hmm. That's amazing. I mean, just giving those kids an opportunity to keep doing what they're doing, but just in a safer manner and, and properly, you know, and yeah. Yeah, so and the, like the rec coordinator can go in there and drop in every once in a while and kind of like make sure that there's some some things like, you know, really encouraging the kids to wear um, helmets, um, keep their bikes in relatively good shape so that they're safe, uh, encouraging them to use like the neck protectors and stuff like that, um, but without taking that sense of ownership away from them, you know, like when we're kids we were all building jumps and features out in the woods because we wanted to have fun, but we kind of wanted to get away as well. And if you take that sense of creativity and that sense of ownership away, they're going to get bored and they're going to go move on and they're going to go back to building in the woods. It, it sounds like ownership is, is a, a big underlying theme to, to this discussion. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. I think, I think you've really hit it on the head there on a, multiple levels, right? Like it's about, ownership for the kids in terms of the activities that they're engaging in, uh, having, helping them to understand autonomy and, and managing the risks and accepting the responsibilities that go along with it. Um, I think one of my favorite moments from when we were building in Boothroyd is, you know, near the end of the two day weekend, I remember one of the kids climbing up on top of the, the big dump that we built and throwing his arms up in the air and saying, this park is ours. 
you know, and all the parents were just sitting there like, oh, my God, this is amazing. You know, and I, I learned sometime later, like sometime later, some kid who was visiting the community tried to set fire to their their learning square. Like we built them this learning square and all the kids like ran over and put it out. And they're all like turn into this epic battle of chasing this kid around. <laughs> and I, I don't think he ever tried to set fire to anything ever again, you know. But, yeah, it's about giving them that sense of, this is yours. Take care of it. Like here's, you know, and I think one of the things that worked with the kids in Boothroyd and again in Lillawad is we said, you know, you set the rules, but there's, there's gotta be some semblance of safety here. So what are you going to do to take care of that? And, you know, they made their own rules. So one of them was like, no dig, no ride, you know, no lid, no ride. Like you got to have a helmet. And they instituted those rules. We didn't say you must have helmet although we were kind of leading them in that direction as best that we could, you know, and then they put things like they would put little uh, chains and locks over the, the big, um, the drop-ins to some of the bigger lines so that the little kids couldn't, you know, take these rides that they didn't know how to do yet, you know? Um, and as far as I understand it, it's like the big kids can go there anytime they want, but the little kids have to go with their big brother, you know, like they've implemented those rules. Uh, and then the rec coordinator just drops in every once in a while and talks to him and make sure, uh, you know, he's, you know, he sets consequences. Like he says, you know, if anybody gets hurt here and they're not wearing their helmet, there's going to be consequences. So he, he has to set the boundaries, but he lets them implement how they're actually going to do it. And I think that's a big part. And of course, the other big piece is it's about, I mean, when first Nate, in my experience, whenever my first nation friend and colleagues talk about the land, they never, they never talk about ownership but they talk about responsibility and that's a big piece of this. It's all about sharing uh, and accepting our responsibilities, our responsibilities to each other, our, our responsibilities to the land and, and taking ownership of that. And I think that's another big uh, key piece that runs throughout all of this. So it, it started with this community out in the Fraser Canyon and, and then what was next? What was the, what was the next community or what was the next project? Well, the, the next project after Boothroyd uh, was the Tall Tan Nation. They're uh, up in northwestern BC. Um, their territory is around 93,000 square kilometers, just just south and, and just uh, crossing the border a tiny bit into the Yukon. Um, and it's made up of two different bands, the Tall Tan Band and the Iskit. So we were invited by the chief of the Tall Tan Band, a man by the name of Richard McLean. And he invited, he had heard about what we were doing with Boothroyd. And I'd been working with that community already and had heard about what the chief was doing is he had started this um, event called the Chief's Ride. And it was something he started. He had experienced an injury he was a guide outfitter and he experienced injury um to his knee i believe it was and his doctor had told him and encouraged him to start biking around his community as a form of exercise and he realized as he was experiencing his community on his bike he he was seeing it in a whole different light and he was really enjoying it so as part of his election campaign um he rode his bike from Dees Lake, which is on the Stuart Caster Highway that leads up into Alaska, to Telegraph Creek, which is a small community, their, their second residential community that's on the banks of the Stikine River, 123 kilometers away. So he did it in one day. It's a partially sealed dirt road. Not the most exciting ride, but the, the landscape is 
unbelievably beautiful. It uh, uh, skirts the border of uh, Mount Idzaidza National Park, which is like this big, beautiful volcanic mountain, um, and through the Stikin River Valley. Absolutely gorgeous. Uh, and he did it as a fundraiser and to raise his profile for the election of chief. And he won that election, became the chief, and for the next three years, he did it every year as a, as a fundraiser. Um, and he used it to raise money for the community's emergency fund. Um, so uh, things like if somebody needed to travel to Vancouver for say uh, 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 treatments, he would help the family go with them through this fund. Uh, and more people started riding with him, more community members started joining him. And I heard about this ride while I was working with the community and I, I told the chief what, what I was doing. And, he invited us up to participate. And I ended up there um, with a couple of different people in 2013. We did the ride and then we worked in the community. Uh, and Daniel Scott actually, who was with uh, the International Mountain Bike Association at that time, helped us build a small bike park in the community, which was like a pump track and some rollers and some little trails uh, around the area. And he trained up what would be our first trail crew. Uh, so that was a super exciting project and they still do the uh, bike ride every year and raise funds for the community. Uh, and I believe they're still building trails. Uh, why are trails so valuable to the First Nations? First Nation communities in BC have been trail builders since time immemorial. That's how they've always uh, asserted their presence over their territories. It's how they moved across their territories to access resources, to engage in trade with other communities, whether it was you know, water trails like rivers or it was land-based trails. Um, and they had they built up a trail system over thousands of years that would you know, rival the Inca in terms of their their reach and their the extent across the land. Uh, and when, of course, when Europeans first came here, it was First Nation guides who took them across the land. It was always on their trails. Uh, and to this day, most of our highways, our roads, and a lot of the existing trails that we have are all based on the trails that they developed. Um, so trails are a critical part of their, their, their culture, their heritage and their traditions. And even now today, when a lot of First Nations are engaging in land claims or treaty uh, negotiations, they often use the presence of trails as uh, asserting their claim. They're able to say, we use this area and there's this trail um, that we used to use to go back and forth between communities or places where they would harvest resources or access, you know, important spiritual areas. So trails have always been important. When it comes, what I end up dealing with a lot and it comes in our program is we're usually focusing on things like recreation and tourism. A lot of First Nation communities, uh, when it comes to active lifestyles and uh, outdoor recreation or active transportation, trails have been pretty much left out of the equation. Um, the reserves that communities, uh, First Nation communities live on weren't designed to keep people in those communities. They didn't want First Nation communities leaving them and going out onto the land. So part of what we're doing is revitalizing that connection through trails. Um, most often not, there's nowhere for them to recreate. The only place for them to run or ride their bikes is usually on the one road that goes through the community, which is quite often a busy highway. 
So it's it, when we started doing this program, when we started talking about trails, we found there was a huge demand. It a, a has actually become a very big part of our program because they're desperate for and really hungry for any kind of outdoor recreational opportunity that'll provide them the opportunity to get outdoors, get out onto their territories and reconnect with the land. Um, so those are a lot of the different reasons why these trails are so important for them. And it's it's been a really big part of what we do. Um, so that's why we train up youth crews and get them out building during the summer um, because it can provide a major opportunity for the community. You know, like 10 minutes of walking a day can make a fundamental impact on a person's health. They, they see less hospital visits, their, their hospital stays are shorter, they recover faster. It's really important for mental health as well. Um, so it can make a big difference on a rural remote community where there isn't a lot of opportunities for recreation. And it's a relatively cheap way to get people out and active. You know, building a, a skate park or building a basketball court or even building a, a baseball diamond can be hundreds of thousands of dollars. But we can build, you know, 10, 20 kilometers of trail for $30,000, dollars $50,000 using a, a crew made up entirely of their own youth. And then they have that sense of ownership over the trail. So, yeah, trails can be a huge benefit for a community and they, they see a lot of value in that. And I think that's been part of our success is that we realized right away that that was something that we needed to focus on. Because a lot of the places we went to, we, we'd talk about mountain biking, but there wouldn't be any riding opportunities within the community there might be a great network of trails nearby but in order for them to access those trails and the, for the kids to access those trails they have to have vehicles which isn't always an option so building the community uh, building the trails right there in the community can be a huge benefit and it it sounds like this isn't just for mountain bikers i know when we've spoken in the past and, and you told me a, a story about a, a women's running group that uh, that was using the trails uh, to get out and, and stay active yeah, it, it's it's actually been um, one of the most exciting experiences. Uh, a part of this is that the trails that we've been building in these communities often start uh, becoming a much uh, much used for a lot of other types of um, activities. So we go in and we talk about mountain bike trails, but we always really stress that the trails that we're looking at building and discussing their multi-purpose and their multi-use. And so one of the groups we work with, um, they're called the Hatsul First Nation, uh, Soda Creek Indian Band. They're uh, just north of Williams Lake. They had a group of women who were running in the community when we first got there, but they had nowhere to really run. There's only one road right to the community. and It was really busy. So as soon as we built the trails, they immediately started using them and they've become the biggest driver in the community for demanding trails because they want more places to run. They want like a, a 20 kilometer loop rather than just a kilometer, which is where we started. Um, so and they saw their numbers expand as soon as they had a safe place to run. They saw more people coming out who felt comfortable being able to run on something other than the uh, the road. And trail running is more engaging. They, they always talk about how it's more, it's funner to run on the trail rather than the road. Uh, and it's more challenging. And now they've started coming down and they do the sun run every year down here in Vancouver. And it's become a big point of pride. Um, another community where we are working, we had a similar experience was with the, uh, the Synth Nation, which is a Shukwakum, uh, Shushwap uh, band up near Barrier, north of Kamloops. And we built the trails there. We built a five kilometer loop and a women's group started up uh, and they started running. And now there's 15 women 
who have been running for the last couple of years on these trails. And again, it's the same. They're the ones who are the driving force behind building more trails. Uh, they're demanding more and more opportunities. They want to get out there and run. Uh, and the guy I'm working with there, a wonderful man by the name of Tom Eustache, he's always saying, oh, I wish I wish they had taken before and after pictures because of the difference it's made. It made such a fundamental difference in their lives. They're all healthier and trimmer and just and, and really enjoying the opportunity. I think for him, that's been a really big driver and it, it wasn't something we expected. Uh, so it's been uh, really satisfying to see that. What have you learned from these communities? One of the most important things that it, it taught me was in terms of how to approach and work with First Nation communities in a way that makes sense for them. As, as I said before, I was working as a planner and I was, I was trying to get projects to move forward and I was trying to um, provide assistance in a meaningful way. And trails actually came up fairly early in those discussions, but it never really went anywhere. Like I was working on a, a project with the, uh, the Fraser Valley Regional District and a number of First Nation communities on this Experience the Fraser Trail Project. And this is a good example. And, um, so we set up this meeting between leadership from the, the Experience the Fraser River Project and a number of the Stolo communities. And myself, I thought it was a great idea. I was like, yeah, you know, recreation trail, it can be something that everybody will have a chance to use. It's going to generate tourism. Um, but when we got into the meeting, I was really surprised at how um, opposed, strongly opposed, the, the First Nation communities were to the trail. Like, and their message was, this is just another infringement on our land. It's going to bring in people that uh, are going to leave garbage. There'll be vandalism. And like, what possible benefit are we going to get from this? And they were really strongly opposed uh, at that time. And now that project's still going, and I think they've made some great headway. But it really showed to me at the time, like, wow, I've really got this backwards. It's just this approach doesn't really seem to be working. And I saw that again and again, project after project that involved uh, a large tourism type uh, trail would just get completely shut down by the, by the First Nations. And typically a lot like the elders would be very uncomfortable with the idea. You know, they just saw it as another infringement, more people coming onto their land, accessing their, their cultural sensitive areas. And they were really, really concerned about it. And where it changed when we started working with Boothroyd and where we started working with Taltan and eventually the Hatsul Nation is when we were talking in the community, we'd say, well, let's forget about the tourism stuff. Let's just forget about that. Let's focus on recreation. Let's focus on getting your kids out moving and your elders out moving. Let's just build some trails right here in the community that you want to see. Um, and that was something they felt very comfortable with. And then as they built up those trails and we started bringing in like local mountain bikers and professionals and we started having those discussions and building that trust and, 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 and building that dialogue and the First Nation community saw that the trails were being built uh, according to their cultural protocols, according to their values and that they were in the leadership role and that it, it respected their role as the, the caretakers and the stewards of the land, they felt so much more comfortable. And we found like the next year or soon after that, they come back to us, say, okay, we wanna build some more trails. We want bigger trails. We want tourism, like, let's do this. Um, so it really showed to me like how a different type of approach, like rather than going to the First Nation community and saying, okay, we're going to do this big project. It's going to help you. It'll bring you jobs. It's going to have all this great stuff. And then the community being in a position where they're like, well, we're not ready to do this. We don't trust you. We don't know you. We don't know what your motivations are. This is not comfortable to us. 
So when we went to them and we said, look, what do you want to do? Let's, let's, if you want to do some trails, let's focus on your kids. Let's focus on your needs. Once we built that trust, they were willing to take the project in a really exciting way. And often we'd end up building trails that we had never even considered before. Um, and the trails that we've been building up in Soda Creek and up in, in with the Simp Nation are becoming big attractions. Lots of people want to go ride them now because they see that story behind it. They, they want to experience the land in a way that's respectful, that uh, makes ensures the benefits flow to those communities. So it really turned that experience around. And that was something I, I really learned from them was how to take that kind of approach. And this is really when it comes down to talking about reconciliation, which is a really big issue in Canada right now. And people are asking themselves, like, what does it mean? What does reconciliation mean to me? How can I bring that into my life in a meaningful way? I think for a lot of people, it's a big ethereal issue that they understand is important, but how to actually incorporate that into your own personal life can be really tough. But I got to work with a lot of non-Indigenous people, a lot of rider, uh, riders and mountain bikers who wanted to engage in those issues but didn't really know how. But coming together over trails and mountain biking allowed for us to have sometimes very difficult, uncomfortable conversations about the legacy of colonialism, residential schools and, and the treaties that are happening now. But it allowed us to have those types of conversations in a way that was much more intimate and comfortable. And you could see that awareness growing as we did it. Uh, so it could be a really powerful experience in that way. So this is this is bigger than mountain biking. Yes, absolutely. I think, and this is, and it, it, yeah, it, it really, I think, has opened my eyes to what it means to be a non-Indigenous person living in Canada and kind of grappling with that history. Um, I think for a lot of people that can be uh, almost an ex existential crisis. Like if you really op open your mind to accepting how our country was, how this country was developed on a legacy of colonialism and genocide, um, the implications of that can be really, ter really terrifying. Because what does it mean for us as non-Indigenous people here if we, we, we accept that those things happened? Um, does it mean that our, our status as Canadians, our, our country is illegitimate? Um, and that can be a really tough question to ask, because then what happens after that? Where do we go from here? Um, so I think the experiences that we've had with tr building trails and having those conversations with uh, our, our Indigenous colleagues and friends is we've learned that it doesn't have to be an existential crisis. We can, we can acknowledge that those things happened and we can learn how to work together and share these territories. You know, no indigenous person that I know has ever said, we want you to leave. You know, it's more like we want you to understand that being here is about accepting the past, acknowledging that we share these lands and working together to move forward. And those conversations at time can be uncomfortable uh, and kind of scary, but when we work through them together, we all come out of it as fuller human beings and we can figure out a way of moving forward. And that's, I think, the absolutely most important lesson that I've learned out of this entire experience has been about that. And it's been amazing to watch, you know, the riding community, folks who've grown up in these communities their whole lives. They're not indigenous, but they've lived here all their lives. Um, a lot of the time neighboring with First Nation communities that they never had a real opportunity to interact with. And you get these people out on the land, building trails together uh, and coming out of it as, as, 
friends and colleagues with relationships that are based on mutual respect and trust. And that to me is the, the best thing that's come out of this, this program. Incredible. So what advice would you have for a mountain bike community that wants to work more closely with a first nations community, whether it be a neighbor or, or, you know, what, what advice do you have for them? Well, I think the thing I always say, the first thing I always say to uh, folks who come to me, and I, I do get people approaching me and asking me this, is I always say, don't wait until you need something. Uh, quite often, I'll, I'll get a, a mountain bike club that'll approach me and ask, like, well, we want to build a trail here. Or we want to build a trail there. and We need to build a relationship with the First Nation community. What, what should we do? And my response is, forget about that trail. Go build the relationship first go and talk to them break. It was a, we were actually having a symposium uh, in Souk with the mountain bike tourism association a couple of years. And we, we were honored to have uh, Gordon chief Gordon planets from the Souk nation come out and speak to us. And he said, his message was come break bread with us, come have dinner with us. Uh, don't come when you need to ask something, you know, uh, come and learn about us. Our door is open. And that's, I think the, my experience with working with First Nation communities all over BC, that's always been the case. They're more than happy to open their doors. They're very, very friendly and open people, but you know, they get so used to people only coming to them when they need something, when they want to ask for something or they expect something. Um, and they can see that coming from a miles, miles away as, as anybody would. Um, but if you go to them with an you know, open heart, open mind, and just try to build that relationship in an open and honest way, I think you're going to get a lot further. Um, and my second piece of advice is in order to build that relationship, you have to go into it, in my mind, with understanding Aboriginal rights and title and respecting that you're on their territories, that they've been here for tens of thousands of years, and we need to work from that base. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of debate around that. And, you know, some people aren't comfortable with that idea, but I, I believe if we want to have a, a meaningful relationship with First Nation communities, we have to ex uh, accept that and understand that reality. And as far as in Canada goes, it's, it's in the Constitution. That's how our government is set up, is based on an Aboriginal rights and title and this nation-to-nation -nation relationship. Um, the three original pillars of Canada was French, English, and First Nations, and we have to keep that in mind whenever we go to a First Nation community. Um, so I think those are basically the two basic steps, is work on building your relationships first and respect their role as the caretakers and stewards of their traditional territories, that this is shared land that we all have to work together on. Uh, and I think you'll find most of the time that you'll be able to uh, come out of it with something really, um, really rich and, and much deeper than you thought of uh, going in. Uh, and if they start making fun of you, you know you're in. <laughs> That's, that's excellent. I mean, I, that's, I think that's a ton of, of food for, for thought for people. And, and I think there's a lot of people out there that, that haven't really thought about this. And, and I, I think, I think today I'd, I'd like to leave it at that. I, you know, I want to thank you for, for taking the time and sharing this, but I, I feel like that we can keep this discussion going and, and I want to keep this discussion going. And, uh, and I'd like to, to chat with you more about that. But, uh, but right now, I just want to say thank you for, for taking the time and, uh, and being on the show today. Yeah, well, thank you for having me on. I, I, I think you're doing a great job with the podcast, and I, I look forward to seeing where it can go. Thanks, Patrick. 
you want to learn more about the Aboriginal Youth Mountain Bike Program, then visit their website at aymbp.ca and you'll find Patrick's contact info there as well. For more info about reconciliation, I encourage you to visit reconciliationcanada.ca and you can also find more about Patrick and the AYMBP in a story there called Digging for Reconciliation. If you'd like to interact with the show, then I encourage you to do so. You can send me an email at brent at bikeski.ca or you can find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at BrentskiBikeSki. Please rate and review the show on whatever podcatcher you're using, including iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. It helps others find the show. Once again, huge thanks to Lee Rosevere for the song Tech Toys. I mentioned last episode that we'll be asking the question, do we need to change the name of our trails? That discussion will be part of episode five. And if you want to contribute to that discussion, then please send me an email or an audio file and we'll get you included. Once again, I'm Brent Hillier. This is Frontlines. Thanks for listening and happy trails.